Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Liberal arts education is a classical academic discipline that focuses on educating the whole person and is rooted in a lifelong study of transcendent interdisciplinary knowledge. Dr. Margarita Mooney, executive director of the Scala Foundation, discusses the purpose of a classical education, its preservation of moral virtue and human goodness, and its place in schools and society in her new book, The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Margarita Mooney. She is an Associate Professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and the Founder and Executive Director of the Scala Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to restoring meaning and purpose in education through the classical liberal arts. She is also the author of the new book, The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts from Cluny Media. Today, we'll be discussing that volume, The Nature of Education, the Liberal Arts, and its Divergence from Educational Practice in Our Modern Institutions. Margarita, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. This is, is really an amazing book, um, and it's amazing in, in, a, in a couple of ways. One, one is the content, and one is sort of the way it's put together. It's very interesting that it's dialogues, and uh, the liberal arts are rooted in the classical tradition, um, which, of course, has its own dialogues. How did these dialogues originally emerge, and is the composition of the book as a collection of dialogues a self-conscious use of the forms of the classical tradition? Well, this book, The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts, which I published actually just in June with Clooney Media, grew out of a course on liberal arts education that I have been teaching for five years through Scholar Foundation and at Princeton Theological Seminary. And with the shutdown of campuses caused by COVID in March, 2020, I decided to pursue a dream of mine, which was to have conversations with some of the, some of the scholars who I know from top schools in the United States who live and practice the liberal arts tradition across a variety of disciplines. So precisely what makes this book unique is that although it is certainly trying to explain to readers what the liberal arts tradition is, it's trying to exemplify what the liberal arts feels like as a conversation. And in each conversation, I ask the scholars from Stanford, like Elizabeth Corey and Robert George from Princeton, William Damon from uh, Stanford, um, to reflect on their most transformative experiences in education. And so I'm helping people to see that even top scholars at some of the best universities in this country are still people who are learning, asking questions and going deeper. So yes, the book is both about why liberal arts education matters today 
but it's also providing a taste for readers of what that feels like by encountering scholars dialoguing with each other about the foundational principles that guide their approach to education and the most important transformative experiences that formed them as students and teachers. So these are, these are not only liberal arts theorists, education theorists, but they're they're practitioners, um, and that's and that's a great way to think about it. And gets to sort of at the beginning of the book, the way you frame education in the context of the fact that humans have a sort of insatiable desire for meaning and knowledge. Where does this desire come from, and how should this desire inform the way we think about education and our in our own education also? Dan, I think it's so important to get education right. We have to talk about our first principles. And one of the first principles is fundamentally, how do we understand what it is to be a human person and live a good human life? And the way that I explore this question with my students is I get them to compare different understandings of the human person. One common view of the human person is that we're we're basically machines that produce things. We're homo faber, we're creatures of action. But there's an older concept of the human person called religious man or mythical man, where the human person is both body, you know, both kind of a material reality, but also an immaterial reality imbibed with meaning. And so I walk students through the history of these different ideas of the human person and try to ask them, in your experience, does this reductive view of the human person as nothing other than purely driven by biological needs, does that seem right to you? Does that satisfy the longings of your heart? And the answer is really no. So when I say that humans have an insatiable desire for meaning and knowledge, I'm drawing on an older understanding of the person where the human person is an integrated unity of mind, body, and soul. Therefore, education cannot be simply about passing on knowledge. Content matters, right? Knowledge matters. But really, what an education is supposed to do is through encountering knowledge, help you grow in wisdom. And in order to grow in wisdom, you have to understand the world as having a material component, but being deeply imbued with significance, with purpose. And if we don't have frameworks to think about our own lives as having a purpose and the world as having a purpose, we simply don't know how to use the best tools we have in order to further the human good. So coming from this perspective, this, this perspective that tries to, to address the whole human person, um, this is a very unique perspective in educational philosophy. Um, just how does that work on sort of like a practical level? And what is it about the liberal arts model that sort of facilitates this? Is the liberally educated person a different sort of person as a result of this of this sort of education uh, than simply, you know, maybe like have has a different array of knowledge about subjects at the end of it? Great question. So 
going from this first principle, right? That human beings are mind, body, and soul, that we see the world as having a material element, but also deeply imbibed with meaning. This leads to a view of education where on the one hand, the term liberal arts education is often used to mean an introduction to the primary ways of knowing, right? Sometimes we'll use the term liberal arts to talk about the ancient quadrivium and trivium, mathematics, poetry, science, the primary ways of knowing the world. Um, but another way of understanding liberal arts tradition harkens back to a more medieval understanding where learning and prayer and living together were considered to be a unity, right? So. When we talk about, for example, liberal arts colleges, such as Magdalene College of the Liberal Arts, I interviewed its former president, George Harn. This idea of a liberal arts college is trying to bring together knowing with contemplation and with living together with our brothers and sisters. Another way that liberal arts ed education the term liberal arts education gets used is to refer to either the, the humanities in general, so English literature, philosophy, um, or more specifically, a great books curriculum, such as that of St. John's College or Columbia University's core curriculum. And these different usages of the word liberal arts, the primary ways of knowing, the integration of knowledge with community and prayer and worship, and humanities are great books, they share a lot of things in common. But the kind of liberal arts education that I'm talking about in Scala probably derives mostly from a, from a view of education espoused by, let's say, John Henry Newman and his discourses, the idea of a university, and also explained so well in Jack Maritan's book, Education at the Crossroads, which I dialogue about in The Love of Learning with Robbie George from Princeton and William Damon from Stanford. And that idea is that precisely through liberal arts education where you have content and you have a curriculum, you also create an environment of friendship and community and leisure so that ultimately, getting to your question, a liberally educated person is formed in a holistic way. And it's what can be called formation or paideia, right? That the end result of a liberal arts education, as I've described it, is the formation of a human person who knows how to encounter beauty and grow in wisdom and discern their personal vocation in the world. So what I love about speaking to an audience like uh, friends of the Acton Institute, which I admire so much, is that what I'm trying to do with Scala and with this book is to show how to go from first principles about who we are as human persons to actual practical ways of living in the world that uphold and strengthen human dignity. And too many forms of education focus exclusively on passing along technical skills exclusively on test scores or exclusively on getting people ready for a job. I am not in any way opposed to jobs or skills or credentials, neither are any of the people that I interviewed. But our common point of agreement 
is that education does not lead to human freedom if it's reduced simply to a set of tools to be passed on. The end of education is the formation of a person whose inner dynamism is now something that he or she can master and direct and continue to discern how to use one's gifts in the world and encounter the transcendent truth in the symbolic dimension of the world. This is a fascinating explanation, and it gets me reflecting a little bit on my own sort of liberal arts education. I did my undergraduate degree at Hillsdale College, which has a very strong core curriculum. And, you know, uh, there's a great book's focus, um, at least in the early years there. And I'm thinking about how I'm still having conversations today with, you know, friends uh, that were fellow students, you know, 20 years later, we're still talking about some of the same books. We're still engaging with these questions. Um, and this isn't um, necessarily limited. You know, I, I have a more – I have an occupation that lines up with that a little bit more. But I have these conversations with people who I went to school with who are now plumbers, who are now journalists, who are now um, – rabbis. Um, and it's, and it's fascinating to think, um, you know, when you, when you describe it like that, this, this, this shows up and, and sort of continues. These, these dialogues continue and they continue to shape and inform sort of throughout all of life. What are some of the dominant rival strains of education Different from the liberal arts. We talked a little bit about this vocational aspect with a lot of education. Um, why is it that they seem to have enchanted so much of the educational establishment and so many educational institutions? Well, I became interested in education, educational philosophy and practice, not because it's my specialized area of knowledge, though maybe it has become so, but because I've been a student and a professor in elite settings for you know close to 20 years now. And I was fortunate to have a Catholic parochial education growing up where learning and liturgy and community were all very intertwined. I was an undergraduate at Yale University. I had a lot of freedom in the curriculum and took everything from art history with Vincent Scully to psychology with Peter Salovey and all these wonderful subjects. My mind was being nurtured. And then I worked for three years with Oscar Arias, a former president of Costa Rica, lived in Latin America, worked on the reintegration and the civilian life of former combatants in Central America. And I was deeply interested in the, in the connection between the social sciences and human development, especially in sort of post-conflict situations. So I went on for a degree in sociology, a PhD in sociology, where I learned a lot. I'm a fan of the sociological toolkit but it was there in graduate school at Princeton University that I felt that my specialized education at the PhD level was lacking something. And this is what I see going on in education more broadly. As you advance, you become pushed to specialize. And there's something good about that. I believe in disciplines. But we're seeing a trend in which specialization in education is happening sooner and sooner. So in particular, one trend that is, I'd say, a competitor to the liberal arts view of education is a focus on STEM and STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, apart from 
separated now from other elements of the quadrivium and the trivium, separated from English literature, history, philosophy. And the emphasis there is that, hey, to really be leaders in science, we have to have students on the forefront of discovery. Well, as we hear in the book from Carlo Lancelotti, a professor of mathematical physics at the City University of New York, the true engine of science isn't what happens in the laboratory. It's what happens inside of the human heart and the human mind. The true engine of science is the capacity of the human person to imagine something that might exist, but doesn't yet exist and then pursue a method to see how to bring that about. So the imagination, the scientific imagination is the engine of science. So although there's a lot of great things to be said about STEM education, we're not fully educating our scientific and technical leaders if we're not exposing them to literature, to mathematics. As Carlo Lancelotti says so eloquently in the book, you can't really understand your specialized field of knowledge if you don't know the whole. So in sociology, my field, for example, when I tried to get really well-trained social scientists to engage with moral philosophy or theology that also looks at questions of human suffering, I was told that's not how we're supposed to do things, as if somehow it's better if one discipline addresses a problem and ignores how other disciplines have thought about that. My answer to that is that kind of approach doesn't lead to wisdom. And a lot of the social sciences don't have a practical application because they've been cut off from their philosophical and theological roots that are necessary to understand the human person. And we've ended up almost replacing psychology of the emotions with the soul that encounters the transcendent and encounters beauty. And there's a lot of confusion, I think, today in the social sciences about the very nature of, the, of our subject of study, the human person and society. Another competitor, you asked, is what can be called the social justice or the political vision of the university. And in some ways, this social justice political vision is part of a longer trend of trying to make education pragmatic for democracy. And here I would point to the philosopher John Dewey, who I discussed with Tim O'Malley from Notre Dame in one of the chapters of this book. John Dewey wanted to make, wanted to move away from vision of education, that's the quadrivium and the trivium, and make education mass education for a democracy. And he saw the classroom as a place to experiment and give students a chance to encounter the world and ultimately with the goal of forming them to play a role in supporting democracy. Now, there's something good about all this and even Jacques Maritain says it, but many years down the road, what we've ended up with is unfortunately, I think, rooted in Dewey. That university's primary goal is to have a political impact and tradition is no longer necessary. Tradition is forgotten. And what comes first, what has displaced the end of education as forming the person, passing on knowledge, what's become primary in some places is to have students form the right political opinions and make an impact in the world. But I simply raise the question, what is the right political opinion if we can't look at centuries of theology and philosophy that have 
debated right and wrong and good and evil and actually reached different conclusions about that. What has happened, as Elizabeth Corey says in our discussion, if the university is no longer a place of what she calls a disinterested approach to fundamental questions, where the answers aren't presupposed, much less imposed, the answer to these fundamental questions of right and wrong and good and bad and politi pressing political and social questions, to presume that education is to make everybody have the right answers to social and political questions is to eradicate the very institution where people are supposed to be given a chance to explore these questions, to look at differences and how people have answered them, and yes, reach some kind of certainty that guides their life, but without a creeping kind of totalitarianism, for lack of a better word, where if you don't reach the right answer, you face punishment or censorship. And sadly, a lot of students today are self-censoring in the classroom around some of our most important political and social issues. And we're actually, the very goal of promoting justice is being undermined by a system of education that's not just because it doesn't correspond to the nature of who we are as human beings. So this this is fascinating because one of the one of the common things between between these sort of rival models is they're sort of production models, where on the one hand you've got the purpose of education is to sort of mass produce specialized knowledge in siloed disciplines. And on the other hand, it's to, it's to mass produce a sort of ideological cohort um, that's supposed to go out in the world and transform the world. Neither of them involve any sort of reflection, contemplation, any sort of individual development. And it's not something new. Like we've had times – and one of the great things the book is, is great at getting at is that um, there's a history of educational reformers. There's a history of departing from a liberal arts tradition and then returning um, from sort of St. Benedict uh, to the present. Um, people who have sought to draw people back to the liberal arts in times of decline. I would, I would put you among these. Um, what are some of the strategies these previous reformers have used um, to sort of uh, stem the tide of, of these sorts of things? And are we, seeing, are we seeing similar efforts today? Well, part of the reason that Scala is dedicated to restoring this mission of classical liberal arts tradition is precisely – because of what you just said, that the liberal arts tradition is a classic in the sense that it has stood the test of time and it has had its ups and downs, but it has come back through the efforts of reformers. And so part of my mission with Scala, really the larger mission of Scala is to revitalize culture, revitalize American culture by turning education back to a mission of helping students encounter beauty and grow in wisdom and to therefore restore meaning and purpose to everything that we do. And so Scala is one sort of entrepreneurial effort in a time when a lot of people are seeking ways to turn education back to this mission of liberal arts. 
So as you said, the book itself chronicles some of these efforts. In the chapters with George Harn, we talk about um, the classical model with Boethius and the medieval university. Carlo Lancelotti talks about St. Benedict, which of course goes back about 1500 years. I have another book I wrote the introduction to another book on Benedictine education for Clooney Press as well, where we talk about John Henry Newman's essays on a Benedictine education. So I would say two things. Since starting Scala and since giving talks on the foundational principles and debates about education, I have seen reforms happening through, first of all, through the efforts of individual teachers and educators in all kinds of settings. Although, of course, Scala wants to help promote schools entirely dedicated to the mission of liberal arts, I do want to point out, as Roosevelt Montas says in his chapter in my book, The Love of Learning, that individual teachers who are swimming against the tide in their context, in their K-12 school, in their university, those teachers are spreading the love of learning to their own students, and they are transforming education one person at a time. So again, I'm so grateful to be on Acton's podcast because I know that Acton's listeners understand the importance of entrepreneurs and of people who swim against the tide. This book, The Love of Learning, is not simply a set of principles. It is a testimony to the work that's already happening. And I have said this in many talks, and I stand by this, that any teacher, any parent, any educator, any religious leader listening to this talk or who buys the book or starts a reading group with this book, you will have an impact on the lives of other people because you have studied and understood the foundational principles of education and you share it with others. Now, in addition to that, there has been a astounding amount of new schools, especially at the K-12 level, which it's much easier to found a school and get it and get it accredited at the high school level than it is at the university level. There are associations of liberal arts, classical liberal arts high schools, um, many different kinds. I'm just, you know, the sacred, the great heart schools come to mind. There's an association of schools, charter, public charter schools affiliated with Hillsdale that is also teaching the great books. So I've seen networks of these schools, usually with visionaries and entrepreneurs, founding new schools. And these schools are being founded in places like, you know, inner city Detroit or in the Bronx. These are not only in suburban or elite places. There are charter schools and K-12 classical schools that are reaching students from all different socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds. And what I would say is that those schools have often told me that they need teachers who understand the broader mission of the liberal arts, and they need books like the one that I have just published to give their teachers ongoing formation and also to give their students and their parents a deeper understanding of why the liberal arts model of education is better for their children than a purely STEM model of education or a purely political view of education. In higher education, I'll just say that there are a number of institutes that are affiliated or on the same campus as universities that are helping students learn how to integrate their knowledge into a whole. And these institutes run summer programs. Um, I would put even the Acton Institute 
the Acton Institute has an educational mission and it's an educational mission aimed at lifelong learners who are entrepreneurs, who care about free market principles and virtues, but ultimately the Acton Institute's mission is to promote a free and virtuous society. And Scala's mission is to provide education that helps people encounter beauty and grow in wisdom. I think our missions are really complementary. So I would invite anybody listening to this podcast to check out the Level Learning Books website. And we have a link there to start a reading group based on this book. And we will provide you the books. We want this book to get out and to get into the hands of people. Again, Scala promotes some programs, but we're really trying to get our foundational principles out to a wide audience because I believe in sowing the seeds of knowledge and letting entrepreneurs take those seeds and grow it where they are. Let me make a final point before we move to the next question. Liberal arts education cannot be mass produced. We need entrepreneurial, visionary leaders and teachers to take these foundational principles, which I've discussed, and apply those to a variety of contexts in a way that does take account of students socioeconomic background, culture, does acknowledge the political time that we're living in and can take these principles and make them applicable and enrich different kinds of contexts. There is no one system of how to do this that applies across all contexts. This liberal arts education needs to be decentralized. And as Maritan explains so well in Education at the Crossroads, this vision of education is not simply schooling. It's faith communities, it's parents reading with their children, taking them on field trips, it's civic associations, and it's schools all working together. That is that is really exciting. That's, that's a wonderful opportunity um, for our listeners and for anyone else who's interested in exploring these themes further. Um, the, the, the books recommended, recommended in this book, The Love of Learning, are, are very worthwhile exploring in depth on their own. And, and thank you for that, for that opportunity to study that you're um, giving everyone. There is um, a real hunger for it. I mean, I see in, in the local sort of Grand Rapids context, you know, when I was growing up, there were, there were public schools, there were parochial schools, and there were uh, – schools, you know, other other religious schools that were basically all the same sort of sort of Dewey model. Um, some were some were better than others, but you know, the model was pretty pretty much the same. What I see now is so many you've got you've got private schools, you have parochial schools, uh, Father Roberts Parish, uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus, they basically refounded their school a couple years ago on a classical model, and it has thrived since. Um, people are really, really hungry for something different. That being said, liberal arts education has a lot of critics. Um, what, what are some of the most common criticisms that you encounter at the liberal arts? Do they have merit? And, and, and how, do, how does one respond to these sort of criticisms? Well, I would say two of the most common critiques of liberal arts education are one, that it's elitist, and two, that it's exclusive or Western. Let me take the two of them apart, though they're actually related. Some would say that for people whose lives are driven by the need to have skills and credentials in order to get a job to pay the bills, 
and feed their families that to sit around reading great books or learning how to appreciate music is simply impractical. And I had a conversation with an entrepreneur who runs vocational schools and he supports my mission because he says that, well, the people I'm educating may have a vocation to become a hairdresser or a truck driver, but they're human beings and they also need character education and moral education and civic education. So I would just say that I'm not proposing that everybody have a PhD in English literature or in philosophy. I'm not proposing that everybody needs to be a specialized professor in one of the liberal arts. But I am proposing that human formation, paideia, knowing how to grow in wisdom and encounter beauty is a universal human aspiration. And if, as I think Roosevelt Montas says so eloquently in our chapter and our dialogue in The Love of Learning, what are we saying? What are we saying? when we say that because somebody is an immigrant to this country, to the United States, because somebody has brown skin, because somebody has parents who work in manual labor, what are we saying when we say that those people aren't able to encounter beauty in Augustine's confessions? Or those people won't be inspired by reading Plato's symposium? And himself, his own testimony as an immigrant to Queens, New York from the Dominican Republic, how his life was transformed and he saw his life story reflected in Augustine's confessions. So we as educators, we as parents, we as policymakers, I think we have an obligation to make the classical tradition, the works that have stood the test of time as speaking to the universal needs of the human person, we have a responsibility to make those texts and those authors and those ideas available to anybody, not simply to those who have the money to go and pay for a great books education in an elite school. So if liberal arts education has become elitist and that it's only accessible to a small group of people, that's a problem. Now, as you said, are there any merits to this? As I said earlier, a liberal arts education can and should be adapted to context. So I met a young man who was studying aviation mechanics in a Catholic college outside of, um, outside of Chicago. And he would take one or two liberal arts classes a semester while he got his credentials in aviation mechanics. He doesn't need to take, or perhaps he can't take four classes for two years straight that are just on great books. And this is what Scala is also trying to show that the liberal arts education shouldn't be kind of a competition of how many classics you've read. It's a lifelong program for learning. And we adapt that program to people in their context where they are. There are liberal arts education programs happening right now in prisons run through a program at Calvin College in, in Grand Rapids, right? This approach to learning is available to anybody because it responds to who we are as human beings. The second critique commonly made is that the liberal arts curriculum is, is Western. Again, Roosevelt Montas addresses this, but I would say that to say that Aristotle and Augustine 
our Western, I think, is to take a term out of its context. They certainly have been preserved in the Western tradition, but they were really part of an older kind of civilization that was, you know, not something you could call Western. And Aristotle, by the way, was not a Christian. He was around before Christianity. So just making that point. So that said, I think that a lot of the books in the core curriculum of liberal arts schools do come from authors associated with the West. But there's two problems with that. One, the West has a lot of internal diversity across countries and across time. But I would say that it's extremely important to think about classical liberal arts education as also preserving and sharing the greatest books and the greatest authors and the greatest inventions from any world tradition. So there is a classical Chinese tradition. I'm not sure it's being taught in Chinese schools today because of the kind of government China has. There's clearly an Eastern tradition, Eastern classics that could also be taught. So I would say that classical liberal arts certainly can be broadened to include the best works from Latin America, Asia, Africa. And there's no sense in which because there's a core curriculum that the canon is closed or the canon has to come from one, from one geography. No, precisely the canon is supposed to be speaking to universal human needs. And that makes it, that's precisely what makes it open. So too often Western civilization gets critiqued but it's replaced with some other category that's also exclusive. So how is that progress? Whereas the liberal arts tradition, as I see it, begins with, posits a core curriculum, a tradition, but that tradition is open and it's grounded on principles that allow it to bring in new authors or recover classics from other traditions. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful explanation. And I'm reminded, you know, there are so many figures in the Western tradition who are in dialogue with other traditions. You think about St. Thomas Aquinas and his relationship with, uh, you know, the major Islamic philosophers of his day who get, who get cited and agreed with and critiqued. You know, Henry David Thoreau is reading the Bhava Gita. Uh, Arthur Schopenhauer is reading the Upanishads. The classical tradition in the West is not hermetically sealed. Um, and uh, there's no reason that we can't encounter more perspectives today and, and, they can, and there's no reason that they can't be integrated into a liberal arts education. And getting back to the book, the, the, book is, the book is put together in a very interesting way. It's put together not only to help the reader absorb the contents of the book but to help them go further. It has its own sort of pedagogical apparatus with summaries, discussion questions and suggestions for further reading not only after every chapter but, the, but there's an extensive uh, uh, sort of appendix in the back of the book for a, a guide to reading. Um, what was your vision on how the book's audience would engage the text beyond simply reading the dialogues, appreciating the arguments? There seems embedded in the book itself trajectories for a lifelong learning process. Well, that's exactly it, Dan. When I 
conceived the vision of this book. Um, in addition to the classes I teach at Princeton Theological Seminary and I've taught at Yale and Princeton University, University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill, I've probably run about 40 different reading groups over the past decade or so. And I have always found it so useful when I find books that are philosophically deep, but come ready-made with discussion questions at the end of each chapter. So precisely the length of each chapter is not incredibly long. The chapters are 15 to 20 pages and they end with discussion questions. That means that each of the seven core chapters of this book could form a discussion one night. And I provided a list uh, or really a guide for how to run a discussion group based on this decade of, of doing this. And by providing questions at the end of each chapter, as well as references to the text that we talked about and suggestions for further reading, I'm trying to help readers and potential reading group discussion leaders pair the dialogues with a closer reading of one of the key texts that we talk about. So depending on the amount of time you have or depending on the background of the people in your group, you could easily pair a chapter of the book with a chapter from Maritan or a chapter from Luigi Gisani or a chapter from Paolo Freire. The end of the book, which you mentioned, I provide what I call short guides to key texts that come up across the chapters. And those are like a Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy quick review evaluation. What were the author's main arguments? Who were they primarily in dialogue with? And what are some of the main criticisms? So those those that short guide is hopefully to both inform people about the key foundational authors and debates in education, but also to give people a sense of what they would learn if they were to hopefully pick up one of these books and read it for themselves. So there's several things that I've just said that listeners today can do with this book. In addition to reading it on their own, which I hope you do, you can start a reading group. And I believe that by bringing this book into dialogue with people in your context, you will set yourself off on, a, on an ongoing process of formation and lifelong learning. You can also read some of the original texts that we're talking about. If you're an educator, if you're in a school of education, if you're a teacher, I highly recommend that you read some of the texts in the um, short guides. Read them for yourself and share them also with other people. Soon, I will be recording a series of dialogues on the book at Pepperdine's School of Public Policy. I'll be dialoguing with their professor, Ted McAllister, about this book. And those videos will be open to anyone. It will be a short course, essentially, on the book. But again, extending the dialogue in the book into a video dialogue with me and another professor, Ted McAllister, who teaches on education. So this book, in and of itself, is kind of a lifelong reading program, as you said. I have heard from tenured faculty members who are some of the smartest people I know that they found books in, this, in these dialogues that they got inspired to read. So this book should inspire individual readers in their own lifelong learning, but I really hope that the seeds that this book plant come to fruition in reading groups. Please visit Scala's website, theloveoflearningbook.com, where you can find out information on how we can help you get books for your reading group and bring this to schools, to religious groups, to, to teenagers, to parents, 
to anybody who cares about educational philosophy, policy, and practice today. But ultimately, this book is for anybody who believes that education should be a lifelong endeavor to encounter beauty and grow in wisdom. Margarita, thank you so much for planting the seeds um, of this discussion. And we will be sure to uh, include in our show notes links to all of these resources um, for our audience. Um, if, uh, if, if, uh, and we hope that uh, this project bears wonderful fruit and can get to get us to think deeply about just what it is to be a human person, what it is to grow and thrive in the world, and how they can continue to educate themselves and their communities for, for all of life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you to all your listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.